from National Securities Corporation. It's the Agribusiness Advisor Podcast, where we discuss insights and trends from an investment banking perspective with the investors, corporate leaders, and other stakeholders participating in the industries that grow, process, and market the food that we consume. I'm Ivan Saval, and I oversee the Agribusiness and Food Coverage Group, providing capital markets and financial advisory. All podcast episodes are for informational purposes only and are not to be construed as a solicitation of securities. Any thoughts expressed by myself and or our guests are solely our own and are not those of National Securities Corporation. On today's podcast, I'll be speaking with Bruce Rostetter. Uh, I've known Bruce for a couple of years. Bruce is the CEO of the Summit Group, and the Summit Group is an investment vehicle uh, that looks at opportunities in the ag space, both domestically and internationally. Uh, more interestingly, uh, Bruce uh, is a thought leader and is uh, very involved in the uh, the ag policy side, uh, and I thought it would be great to have him on this podcast to hear his views on where we are in the ag space, not only from uh, midstream, but also potentially from a farmer perspective, uh, and also get his views on the, the recent uh, confirmation of Sonny Purdue, and to hear his thoughts on Brazil. Uh, uh, you know, Bruce is very involved in investing uh, capital in the Brazilian corn ethanol market, and uh, it should be interesting to hear uh, his views. So, Bruce, thank you very much for joining me for this podcast. Um, I think what might be interesting is if you could just start off a little bit and talk about how you got into agriculture and uh, uh, you know, what was the initial interest and in, 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 in where do you see sort of the ag space going and, and where do you look for opportunities? Well, great. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate being here and uh, the, the opportunity to, to visit about agriculture policy and and a number of subjects. But my background is that I grew up on a small farm uh, in north central Iowa, and a 300-acre farm. Uh, went to the University of Iowa, graduated actually with a political science degree, was always going to become an attorney. Decided I didn't want to do that. Came back, wanted to be involved in ag, started farming. Uh, that evolved into getting a chance to sell feed for Mormon manufacturing. Uh, that's today owned by ADM. And uh, that, uh, that was at a time of, of great change. We had just had land values go down drastically in the late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. And so I was just starting a business. And uh, my main business was, was hog feed. That You have a, have a conference on today in the hog production. Uh, began contract feeding in the mid-80s, a management company, hog production company. Uh, that moved into raising capital and com to combine my companies into Har Heartland Pork in 1994. Really kind of a life-changing moment for me going from a sole proprietorship to reporting to a board mm -hmm. of investment bankers, Harvard MBAs. And uh, so did that, raised $86 million. We bought a pig genetic company from Central Soya. Oh, you and, did? And grew to 1.2 million pigs a year uh, at that time. And... Uh, was the fastest growing hog company and actually uh, I know today you'll talk about prices and yeah. forward look. We're the fastest growing hog company when hogs uh, went to nine cents in 1998, uh, a 50-year low. So uh, that became an interesting moment. Uh, stopped growing, uh, got better at the business, uh, raised more capital, uh, survived through that and in 2004 sold uh, the company to Christensen Farms 
and which made them the third largest pork producer in the U.S. Uh, and uh, we built a 50 million gallon ethanol plant in Iowa Falls, Iowa in 2004, completed in 2005. Went to market here in New York, uh, raised a $185 million term B loan, a, a uh, the first of its kind at, at that time. So 50 and, million gallon in 04, that was a sizable ethanol plant yeah, at that, that time. A lot of the plants uh, had started out at 20 million gallons. It was kind of the 50 million gallon Fagan ICM prototype. Uh, we raised the capital to double it and, and then build a 100 million gallon plant in Fairbank, Iowa. Okay. Decided uh, it made sense to go to market. Uh, but how did you go from, from hogs to ethanol? What was What was the vision there? You know, I think... I think there's some similarities on uh, the, the economic model of ethanol and looking at some things that Verison was doing and others and uh, believed that the government was going to continue to support it. So we knew something about employing people, commodity prices, 70% of the cost of ethanol is corn, same thing in hogs. Yeah. And, uh, and it's just about capital choosing the right builder and marketer. So we went ahead and... Uh, and completed those two plants, ended up selling the company to the folks at Thomas H. Lee in Boston. And uh, we had established a large enough platform that their goal at the time uh, with their fund was to large, buy large platforms and in growth industries and put capital to work and grow those. So we, we did. We built two more large-scale plants, uh, 100 million gallon plants to become the country's fourth third largest uh, ethanol producer at the time. You know, as, as the world and business goes, those two plants happened to uh, open up in the fall of 2008. We managed through that, ended up uh, uh, in 2011 selling those plants to Coke Industries. Really kind of brings us to today, uh, that after 2011, I, I was freed up to do other things rather than run a large company. And uh, at the time, uh, or during that time, I had grown a a farming operation called Summit Farms. And uh, we, it had slowly grown over time, corn, soybeans, some hog buildings. Uh, so in 2006, that accelerated with the transaction we had we had, had uh, to the point today where we farm about 14,000 acres, north central Iowa. Uh, we have about 300,000 head worth of hog buildings with Smithfield, Christensen, uh, Mashoff, and Honor, and today Triumph. Uh, so there are tenants on your on your property, or how? What's yeah, the we we build there? the buildings oh, and, build the and building. then they okay. put the pigs in them. I see. And so we're a contract hog producer on the hog side, and then we also have about ten thousand head of cattle on feed and feed some cattle in Scott City, Kansas. And uh, separate from that, we had always had a number of uh, partnerships with people that come to Iowa that want to own farm ground, hog buildings. And, and we formalized that to the form in, into funds in 2009 and said our go-forward entity would be to purchase farmland in, in a land fund, and they could invest in that. And we'd have the typical period of a 10-year investment and, uh, and know that there was a set point when there was going to be liquidity. And uh, so we did that, and since that time, we were moving towards our third U.S. land fund. Uh, the first one we sold out of in 2011, believing that land values had gone up in a pretty dramatic way and that we ought to harvest those returns, uh, stopped buying farms in the second fund. And we just started buying farms in those, that fund about a year ago uh, when we believed the market was nearing, nearing the bottom. Mm -hmm. And we'll soon this summer raise the third fund as the second one is getting filled up. 
I think separately we try to do projects that make sense uh, for our background. So what we try to do is take our ag experience, uh, some of which is obviously in production agriculture, row crop, corn, soybeans, we get to see a lot of technology, uh, experience in the hog business, ethanol, and uh, we overlay that with the financial relationships and experience we gain from the investment banks. Mm -hmm. And so we have advisors uh, from here in New York from some of the best funds and uh, uh, guys that are, have recently retired but want to continue to do things, uh, in particular in agriculture. So a number of our investors wanted us to look at Brazil. So we spent four years traveling there, trying to find the right partner, the right area to build in, yeah. ended up settling in Mato Grosso. In double crop area, uh, biotechnology has done wonderful things at the ability to produce crops in two seasons without irrigation. So we located in the town of Lucas Rio Verde, a town that was 500 people in 1981 and 70,000 people today. And is that, is that all for all corn? ag related? Yeah. So it's it's just amazing uh, what what's happening in that part of Brazil, in in agriculture. Wow. Uh, Mato Grosso now has 23 million acres in soybeans. Obviously, Brazil passed the U.S. in soybean production last year in our lifetime, and maybe quicker it'll, they'll pass in uh, corn production as well as they begin to double crop significant areas of, of, uh, of Brazil, in particular Mato Grosso. There was some concern a few years ago just around the concept of corn ethanol, Not and it wasn't really applicable to Brazil or the United States, but just in general, conceptually, folks couldn't get their arms around the efficiency of corn ethanol versus sugar uh, cane ethanol. Can you talk a little bit about how the technology has advanced such that the corn ethanol is, is as competitive? Yeah, for one thing, uh, you know, the, the technology has continued to improve and, and become much more efficient. And, and a lot of the old studies that the industry continued to fight is uh, are due to an original corn owl study that showed 140 bushel corn averages use of irrigation. So when you look at today's industry, uh, 180 bushel average where most of the corn ethanol industry is, uh, the the growth and efficiency there, the the better use of water, better use of energy, uh, the spinning of the oil off, the taking of removal of fiber. And, uh, and creation of high distillers, grain products, high protein and yeah. high fiber. Uh, we, we think it's much more competitive than, uh, than sugarcane ethanol. In fact, you know, we've done a comparison on relative values of starch. So if you take a pound of starch and, sh and uh, sugarcane today, that's worth about 20 cents. A pound of starch that we purchase in Brazil and corn is 8 cents. So if you wow. think about converting starch into alcohol and then ethanol. Yeah, the energy. Uh, yeah, the industry and the competitiveness is going to be much more competitive. So what we wanted to do in Brazil is take the U.S.'s best technology, which we believe is ICM, with us to Brazil to build the first modern corn ethanol plant. That plant will be starting up this June, somewhere June 6th to 10th. Uh, it'll be producing about 62.5 million gallons uh, of ethanol. Wow, congratulations. So it, uh, it, it's... It's been an exciting project in, in working with our partners down there, a company called Fia Grill, uh, that is a small cargill uh, that touches about a million and a half acres of cr selling crop inputs and buying grain back uh, from farmers. 
Uh, so we we look forward to that getting started. And it's all, they also have a growing livestock industry. Brazil Foods is has a pork plant in that town and a chicken plant, mm-hmm. South America's largest feed mill. Uh, there's cattle going into feedlots today. Mato Grosso has 37 million head of cattle uh, because of corn being produced or going into feedlots to produce corn-fed beef. Yeah. And you see the genetics changing. Uh, you know, for a guy that's involved in agriculture, you, 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 you suddenly... Uh, uh, well, you're, uh, you're, notice one of your initial uh, uh, activities earlier on in your career was on the genetic side. It was. And then so to see, uh, you know, the white cattle and uh, that, that maybe don't have quite as intermuscular fat as uh, black Angus, having black calves on, on the white cattle going yeah. into feedlots, uh, feeding corn, uh, you know. And, and uh, as, uh, as, a, as a good friend uh, told me, and I, I always quote him, but... Uh, I asked him where he'd invest in, in, in agriculture. And he talked about the U.S., continuing opportunity, government, the incremental improvements, uh, but, but, but also Brazil. And I said, why Brazil? And he's, his comment back was, it is the country outside the U.S. that most accepts U.S. technology. Yeah. And when you go there, you see all the U.S. companies being readily accepted yeah, that's and, right. and used. Yeah. The, uh, you know, it's... I didn't realize you had such a strong background in, in livestock. Uh, I'd always sort of had you in my mind as the, you know, one of the pioneers of ethanol. Um, so it's good, actually good timing. We're here, I'm having my breakfast today to talk about the livestock sector and try to bring more investors to look at the space and, and create more transparency between Wall Street and the industry. Um, so I'll take advantage of you being here. What What are your views on on the livestock sector, and and what what area of livestock do you do you sort of feel more comfortable in, in sort of sharing your views and, and thoughts? Yeah, and I think yeah, and I'm sure today you'll talk about uh, the world demand for protein and the continued increase in that. We all know that the world's going to add two billion people, but we often don't talk about the doubling of food production because of the protein demand that's going to happen. And so as pork becomes more efficient, it is going to be one of those protein groups of pork, chicken, and fish that dramatically increase in production to be able to feed that growing world, in particular in China and India, growing middle class, and, and really around the world as we, as we look at uh, the need in Africa for more protein and population increases there that are happening. So I think, you know, the... Uh, you know, I think the good news is the industry has continued to get much better environmentally, so it can be accepted. We were part of the new law in Iowa that, that tracks nutrients. And the industry started doing that in the mid-90s. And uh, so I think that's allowed the industry to grow, uh, as you know, and, and continues to grow in Iowa with the new plants that are coming on board and new plants that are going to be primarily focused on, on export. Oh, really? It, uh, that is, the U.S. consumption of, of pork is pretty static. I think those new plants will have to focus, and that growth in the industry will have to focus on exporting around the world, which you know, brings us to the worry and the challenges of foreign trade yeah. and, the, and our new president and, uh, and the need to continue to enhance that and have that be fair trade yeah. as, as we see around the world. Sometimes it is often not. Yeah. Well, speaking of the president, um his ag secretary was recently confirmed, um, Sonny Perdue. Um, you know, he's going to have his hands full. Do, do you have, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but where do you think he's going to be 
needing to, to really focus his initial efforts in his first, you know, six months to a year. Yeah, I think, and I get a chance to meet with Sonny, uh, now, now uh, Secretary Purdue, uh, a, a few months ago, actually when we thought he was going to be confirmed fairly shortly, and, and then the delays in the Senate uh, caused it just to happen on Monday. But, but I think there's a variety of things, and unfortunately there's a variety of executive orders and actions uh, the USDA took towards the end of the year and, and, and throughout the Obama administration, in particular GIPSA rules that I know livestock producers are concerned about and need to be changed. Uh, there is an environmental CAFL ruling by the EPA that's going to be a real challenge and needs to what be overturned. What exactly are the GIPSA rules? Well, the GIPSA rules involve uh, packers and stockyards and, and how contract production is treated and uh, within, their, within their guidelines. And uh, so he's going to have to look at that. He's going to have to look at the SNAP program on on school lunch programs that moved away from protein uh, in those as much as they ought to have. Uh, he's Sonny Purdue has commented that that needs to be back to local control within the states and the school districts rather than the federal government. Uh, yesterday, and I haven't had time uh, being here in New York to uh, to uh, to understand what it meant, but President Trump issued an order on executive order on agriculture to eliminate regulations that are burdensome to farmers. I think that's good news. That's why agriculture supported him. And uh, so Sonny will be charged with doing that. I think uh, the 10% cut in the USDA you know, will be a challenge uh, to make that department more efficient. Do you think that will actually get through? Does that have to go through Congress to get approved? And that, that's what uh, the executive order uh, uh, that uh, President Trump asked uh, each uh, cabinet secretary to look within their department and, and uh, have the goal of aligning uh, with the administration. So when you think about that and then you think about the challenge with trade, and I know uh, Mr. Purdue has commented that he would, the USDA would like to be the agricultural trade representative rather than have a, an appointed one uh, by the White House. Mm -hmm. So I think that indicates to, to me you know, really great opportunity for him to make an impact on ensuring that trade is there for agriculture and that it's actually fair trade without some of the tariffs that we've seen China, yeah. Japan put on in the past. How sensitive is U.S. agriculture to exports? And I, and I ask because there's all this turmoil that we see out in, in, the, in the geopolitical scene with, with China and with Mexico and and, and relationships really being tested, what what would be the reaction or or the result of um, you know of, of trade of a trade war uh, for agriculture? You know, one of the one of the things that we talked about often, and uh, we've we've kept the group together, uh, the Trump advisory group that that was there during the campaign to support him, but to support ag issues and try and be a sounding board in a group of 150 that. Uh, you know, they got together and uh, encouraged thoughtful ag policy. But if you think about when, when we worry about a trade war, I, I would suggest that, you know, there's been parts of that happening all along the way that the U.S. has rolled over on. For instance, in the last year, China arbitrarily decided they were going to put a 35% tariff on distiller's grain while ships were en route to China. Yeah, you know, no forewarning, 35% tariff. You know, there isn't 35% margin in the distiller's grain. At the same time that we allowed Brazilian beef imports into the U.S. tariff-free, we have tariffs left on, uh, on, on beef imports by Japan for 16 years. Mm -hmm. So at the, at the lowest time 
uh, in the U.S. cattle industry where there had been an equity evaporation unseen in decades. We allow additional beef in tariff-free, and yet we have barriers to those beef sales in other countries where they could easily go. So I think what we heard loud and clear from President Trump is there needs to be fair trade in addition to what people think is free trade. Yeah. So I think you saw it in Canada. When Canada retaliated arbitrarily against dairy farmers in the U.S., he retaliated against lumber and soft pulp. And I think Wilbur Ross is focused on countries need to allow U.S. products to come in there and not arbitrarily decide on tariffs. So I think you'll, you'll see some of that, and there will be some anxiousness and anxiety. Yeah. But it needs to happen yeah. uh, because we've been the recipient of those things for a significant period of time. And we just need access to markets. And clearly, the good news is I think the relationship appears to be starting off well with President Xi, China. Uh, and we're, we're excited from an Iowa standpoint at Governor Branstead, who's a 30-year friend of his, uh, becoming ambassador to China. And there's probably no one that knows agriculture better than Terry Branstead. So all that will, will help. But uh, I think those trade agreements need to be looked at. Uh, from the complexity of those and, and whether or not they're allowing the U.S. to have access in such a way that, that is fair and on a level playing field. Well, to wrap up our conversation, um, I'd really enjoy hearing how you think we can, you know, because I'm an investment banker for the sector, and I'm constantly trying to facilitate conversations between capital and ag. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on, and just back on the livestock space, since I'm having that breakfast today, how do we, that's traditionally been an area for the strategics. Um, how do you think we get the financial community, the financial institutional investors to begin looking at areas of agriculture um, more than they already are? How do we increase the volume of the financial investors to look at the sector? I think, you know, the challenge for production agriculture is the commodity swings and uh, getting investors comfortable that one can manage through those. But also, I think a more integrated approach will make sense for a lot of institutional investors. You know, there's some really successful models out there. I'd suggest the Triumph model is one where you have those pork producers that built a packing plant in conjunction with Seaboard that already owned one. Uh, yeah. to integrate more fully, uh, to buffer themselves from the commodity market uh, with the additional manufacturing of packing, with live production uh, that they're good at, and uh, then taking that market to the end consumer mm -hmm. and, and benefiting from that. So that model exists, the U.S. premium beef model, and beef was one that worked. So I think that and there's other producers uh, looking at packing and, and building packing, and others looking at continuing to do that. So I think there's models out there, and also the efficiency, the capital deployment. Uh, one of the reasons contract hog production is popular is so that producers don't have to have all that capital in the finishing building, and they work with third parties to do that like, like we are yeah. in certain instances. So I think that uh, the continued efficiency of that industry is making protein a, a lower cost uh, per pound uh, that, that's going to be competitive in the world. Uh, going forward, and the U.S. is a great spot with our food safety issues mm -hmm. uh, that go that are going on here compared to when you look around the world and other places. Yeah. Uh, that that will allow the U.S. 
producer in particular pork to be the the meat of choice and, and the place to go to as long as we can keep those markets open yeah. that we just just talked about and i think we will it, yeah. it, ev- so everyone far, knows ex- that's so important the exports are just uh record highs right now things are going very well for the export market for pork yeah and if and as you look at around the world in particular europe and the subsidies that they have the u.s can compete if it's on a level playing field in a dramatic way with efficiencies of agriculture. And we need more value-added agriculture in this country uh, rather than exporting raw corn, soybeans uh, across, uh, but instead uh, shipping pork, chicken, fish. Yeah. Aquaculture is growing you know, in the U.S. and as it will and as, it, as all forms of protein need to. Great. Well, Bruce, thank you very much for agreeing to having a conversation uh, and being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to seeing you uh, in Iowa or in New York. Yeah, stop by anytime. Thank you. Thank you. This discussion has been brought to you by the Agribusiness Advisor Podcast, sponsored by National Securities Corporation, a full-service investment banking firm, member FINRA. Please stay tuned for future conversations with leadership in the agribusiness sectors. If you have comments, questions, please feel free to reach out and we'd love to hear from you. Thank you and here's to next time.